Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, just a photographer who's been at it for over 30 years now. But if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me. And each week I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of those cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is the refinement. Now there is an interesting perspective on this image which is an image from the early days of my capturing this cross collection. It is a horizontal composition, which is unique as 95% of my cross shots are vertical. I'm shooting into the sun, and the landscape and cross are in deep silhouette. The ground takes up only 5% of the lower part of the image, and the cross gets only as high as about 40% of the lower part of the picture. The rest of the image is full of clouds with the sun rays breaking through and fanning out of the entire image. Sun breaking through a light mist of rain. The colors seem to be a black and white photo, but there's a tint of amber in the sun's rays. Why the title, The Refinement? Well, to me, I interpret this image as eliciting a type of purgation of pur- purification into the state of being saved. It can be defined as the act of purifying by separating a substance, all the extraneous matter, a clearing of the dross, sediment, or impurities, as in the purification of metals. In regards to actions and matters, it is to purify them which is from which is gross or clownish or vulgar, to polish or to make elegant. Zechariah 13, it says, I will bring them through fire and will refine them as silver is refined. In this image, the setting sun is breaking through the clearing storm clouds. And to me, there is a daily opportunity with the passing of each day, to be cleansed, purified, and refined. The scripture I chose for this image is Daniel 11.35, which says, Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end of time. 
for it will come at the appointed time. Our life starts out like a young tree with only a few branches. As it grows older, more and more branches and twigs emerge, creating even more branches and new sprouts. In this analogy of nature, every spring the winds will come and purify the tree by breaking off the branches that are not strong enough to withstand this natural purification process. Now for me, one big branch in my life happened right out of high school. A family friend who owned a test lab offered me a summer job. That summer job lasted 12 years. And it was in that first year that another branch emerged. When the lab owner asked me to add to my duties, which was to capture documentary images of the client's equipment for the agency reports. So my photography goes back to that moment. And I fell in love with the process of photography, and initially, all I really enjoyed capturing outside of work was nature and the majesty of God's creation. Slowly, I felt I should be making money if I was to shoot full-time, Side jobs and paid gigs started to erode my ability to shoot what I wanted. No one except my wife, Verna, saw enough of my work to see the full potential. She believed in it so much that she decided to start a business with the intention of being so successful that I could have the freedom to shoot the beauty of God's handiwork full time. And Verna achieved it. But... Within two weeks of retiring, literally, from her day job, she passed away, and I was holding her hand as she flatlined. And just as I heard the dreadful flatline tone, I felt the third hand in ours. As I released Verna's hand into God's, I saw beyond my life, my planet, even the dimension that I live in. And as I did, I felt a gentle but immense wave of peace filling up within my entire being. It gave me a peace that surpasses all understanding. Not long after the funeral, I settled into a new routine of finding isolated sites to soak in evening sunsets. I would fixate and meditate on the sky as the colors changed as it felt the closest I could get to heaven. The quest of finding new vistas led me to discover a 12-foot-tall white wooden cross on a remote hill. When reviewing the prints from my first session of shooting the cross, I was artistically hooked. But more importantly, I had found my sacred spot. It seemed as if God was pointing to the cross, saying, This is the answer to your quest. But even nowadays, many years later, when someone asks me what it is about photography that I love the most, I tell them it is the ability that it provides me to transmit a feeling. On that ridge, shooting that cross... I found that by focusing on the cross of Christ, I was allowing Jesus to focus on me. I experienced profound emotions of acceptance, forgiveness, awe, 
and gratitude, wonderment, peace, and God's unconditional love. So in this image, the refinement, or even my other images, it's not about what the cross looks like to the eye or the image looks like. It is what I felt while capturing and contemplating the message of the cross that really matters. In a world of constant chaos, it is the protection, purpose, and peace of the cross that never changes, which causes us to look, to really ponder what Jesus really went through to become our Savior. His series of events, when viewed comprehensively, leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse, more painful, more inhumane than 99% of the human race. Some accounts of paintings or even movies show a very sanitized version of Jesus up on the cross. Yes, some show blood from the crown, his knees, his hands and feet, and of course where the spear pierced his side. But the Bible tells us of a much more gruesome scene. It says in Isaiah 52:14 that just as there were many who were appalled looking at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond any human likeness. In another translation, it says he no longer looked like a human man. Let that sink in for a bit. Jesus was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. But in studying for this devotional, I, I learned that the process of crucifixion was not just physical, but the cultural and societal shame it brought to the one being executed, but also the widespread stigma to all his family and friends. Those known to be associated with the defendant were socially shunned, dropping down a peg or two in the Hebrew version of a caste system ruled by the priest class. So what we're saying here is that being crucified was also meant you were perceived in that society by everyone that knew him as being cursed by God. Wow. Jesus was cursed? Yes, and it may not be known to some, but this is the main theme of the entire biblical story of the human condition from the Garden of Eden up to Calvary and the resurrection. So let's see if we really understand this. God had to curse and break the right relationship with his beloved son to restore the right relationship with mankind? Yes, and that is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, break his right relationship with them, cursing them, toiling and sweating over the fields for food that the man, Adam, and Eve, there was to be pain of childbearing, as well as enmity with the serpent. Then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. To reverse this status, God had to curse and exile his son Jesus, who is sinless, innocent, and holy, giving Jesus up to the 
worse execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on someone. But the physical aspect of the torturous process of a crucifixion was nothing, in my opinion, to the utter horror, agony, and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future until the rapture, of all the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, villainous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderous, barbaric, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable, unthinkable, uncomprehensible. But it makes sense now in light of this new paradigm. An outpouring of eternal wrath was an actual part of the actual plan. As I just mentioned, for me, I understand it completely would be unfathomable. All I know is that the Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy and can't cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from his son to allow all the sin of the world to dwell with Jesus. We know this to be the case when it is reported that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So even those people who feel God has abandoned them, maybe you felt like that. Jesus can say he knows what it actually feels like because it actually happened to him. And more than any human, because Jesus the Son was closer to God the Father than any other human. More than any other human that ever lived from the beginning of creation. The absolute anguish of being abandoned and then having all that sin placed in him. So... Maybe it took the overflowing, outpouring of God's wrath into and through Jesus to wash off or refine Jesus, to purify his soul as he descended into the realm of Lucifer. We are not told this implicitly, but it infers that it was needed for Jesus to achieve his covert mission. And that was to go down to the lower spirit realm that the demons were trembling in anticipation of defeat. But as the body of Jesus lay in the tomb, his spirit was active. And here, much more there was going on in the other dimension beyond anything we can imagine. He was resurrected and came back with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. This is the source of our faith similar to the point where a trickle comes out of a hillside and flows into a creek and eventually into a mighty river. The whole story, the divine Jesus allowing himself to be crucified, cursed, and abandoned, only to know that the hidden plan was to retrieve the dominion of this earth. Our hope is forged as Jesus declared the mission accomplished. 
Because Jesus came back with the keys to death, hell, and the grave, the power that allows us to be saved today, we can rest in the ability in the outpouring of the blood of Jesus to overcome the outpouring of wrath for the sin that we deserved, to be cleansed, to be refined into a holy status and right relationship with God the Father, to allow God's perfect peace while we live out our days on earth, but also hope in the eternal afterlife with the Trinity. St. Augustine of Hippo said once, No one knows what he himself is made of except his own spirit within him. Yet there is still some part of him which remains hidden, even from his own spirit. But you, Lord, know everything about a human being because you have made him. Let me then confess what I know about myself and confess too what I do not know, because what I know of myself I know only because you shed light on me. And what I do not know I shall remain ignorant about until my darkness becomes like bright noon before your face. I've heard many analogies about the grace creation process. One is reportedly from Martin Luther, in which he says sin is like dung or a dung heap, and that it turns the human soul into a pile of dung. The atonement of Jesus is like freshly falling snow lily-white snow, which covers over the dung. And when God looks at our soul, what does he see? A pile of pure white snow. But what happens if someone comes and kicks that pile, if the accuser comes to accuse us? What happens? The pile of dung shows through. There's another perspective from St. Bonaventure, which is that our soul is like a mirror, which has the ability to reflect the image and light of God. But our sins cloud up the mirror like dust, which dulls the image. At first you can still see the image of God, but only faintly. And if the mirror is not cleaned, the dirt will fully obscure our ability to see the image of God. The good news is that Jesus cleans mirrors. He does do windows. His blood can wash away our sin and allow us to receive and reflect the light and love of God. And yet, the oldest book that is included in the Bible is the book of Job. And he sets a tone for the main theme of the entire theme of the Old Testament into the New Testament. In Job 23.10 it says, God has known my way and my existence, and he has tested me as gold, and I came forth, having kept my way without turning aside. Now Job lost everything. Literally, sons, daughters, possessions, all of it. And he he was afflicted with painful boils from head to foot, among other things. And as Job passed through the trials, he said, I came forth as gold. When Jesus shared the parable of the wicked tenants, he said, The stone builders rejected what has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The good news of the gospel is we have hope in salvation, and yet we are commanded to take up our cross and to drink of the cup of salvation daily. In other words, to die to ourselves daily 
and to break ourselves upon him. Yes, once saved, you are saved, but the analogy here versus the one of dung or the mirror is the level or degrees of heat from the refiner's fire. It's in our hands, by our choices, both daily and moment by moment. We are all sinners saved by grace, and yet many of us don't utilize the cornerstone, the stone of Christ that can peel off the impurities we bring to him by confessing our sins and asking for God's help to be, if but a bit more, righteous the next day. If we continue to ignore the process that the gospel offers, then the refiner's fire has to be increased to really burn off the deeper layer of impurities. In other words, in this analogy is that Jesus is a jeweler, and we are the diamond ring coming back to him in regular or daily confession, asking for mercy, so he can easily steam clean the dull buildup on the dust and grime. But if we ignore this process and avoid the salvation path provided for us, the jeweler will have to use full fire instead of steam to really purge out the impurities in order to be cleansed and receive and reflect the light, love, and joy of God. In Malachi 3.1, we read, See, I am sending a messenger to prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come upon his temple. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Therefore prepare yourself for refinement. In Malachi's prophecy, it was a way of God saying, Okay, you want me to take out the oppressor? Yes, but brace your own hearts as well. Think about it. It was the collective actions and choices and behaviors that the Israelites caused corporately to fall into captivity. Then they had to be refined to be restored. What is the process of refining? Well, the Bible references how God operates as a divine refiner in our lives, just like the jeweler reference I just mentioned. It helps us to understand the reason behind our pain, which, as I see it, is to calibrate us to the character of Christ. We don't engender a godly character all at once. Character is forged over time, especially through tough and intense situations. We can gain much faith and insights by understanding this refining process. King David said, For you tested us, God. You refined us like silver. Psalm 66.10 The refiner in older times broke up the gold so it was possible to pull out the precious metal of, say, silver that could be exposed to heat. In this analogy, we are a rough ore in need of being humbled by being broken by the divine refiner's fire. In the Bible, we read this in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces? In regard to the crucible God uses, I read in Proverbs seventeen three, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And in this process, there is a layer of impurity left behind as dross. 
we read in Proverbs 25.4, Remove the dross from the silver, and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Then there is the intense heat described in Psalms 12.6, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. The next something that is unique is that the refiner can gauge the completeness of his process by looking at the reflection on or or in the metal. In Job 23.10 it says, He knows the way that I take. When he tested me, I come forth as gold. In a general perception, to recap this process, we read in Isaiah 32.2, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. How? Why? Because it is important to continually refine our hearts to the goal of complete righteousness. However, there is not enough that have accomplished this. We call them saints, and the Bible makes it clear that we are all called to be saints. Now, the good news of the gospel is that we do not have to, which pauses me to be appreciative of the fact that God, through us, can help us to be a saint. Here's the key. We can die to ourselves. When we give up our desires and our personal objectives, trying to control situations, fully surrender, God can work through us to do his work through us. All we are called to do is to pick up our cross and follow him, not following our natural desires of what we want to do or what makes us feel good, but to reject that, to tell our body that the spirit is in control, and then to calibrate our spirit with Christ by asking Christ to be in us today and allow us to be in him. That is the calibration, the daily calibration that keeps us in the proper refinement process. If you are a Christian, have you been living in in these perspectives? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross and these analogies and how we get cleansed of sin, to die to yourself daily and to really trust God, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any situation or any scenario is the best case scenario outcome for us, God's children. And it provides the joy of truly giving to others as Christ gave his all for us. Go and live in that perspective today. And if you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Go take time and read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible. Ask Jesus to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this devotional's image, The Refinement, along with my other Verspirations, then check out Verspiration or Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. The support for what the cross means to me comes from generous donations of people like you. To help this ministry share the gospel, 
please log on to RobbieHolt.com. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com.